1: Everybody to Nightlight. So kind of you to share your time with us. We really appreciate it. I want to thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his amazing introduction. He and his wife Deb have preserved Native storytelling and, and shared it with millions and millions of people and remind us of so many different ways of learning history. They are indeed a precious gift to all of humanity, and if you have not experienced them, You've missed out on something. Tonight I have an amazing guest, and and I can't wait to to dig into her material. I have Gay Bradshaw with us, and she's written an amazing book called Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. She shares her experiences and conversations with this very unique man who lived and merged with these noble creatures and came to not only understand them, but merged and know them in a way not many have. I urge you to read this book, for it will give you a different perspective to the animal kingdom and the delicate balance they provide and the lessons that can be learned from them that apply to all of humanity as well. The many life forms constantly around us that are not seen and and how they as well contribute to the balance we all rely on the integration that we are a part of and often fail to realize and ignore, but is so very important to our very survival. Gay is the founder and director of the Curlis Center for Nonviolence, a nonprofit that was established in 2008. The center's mission is to inspire radical change in human culture by translating an understanding of animal sentient Two practices and ethics of nonviolence. Living as one, we are kin under skin, fin, further, feather, and fur. They provide trauma informed care for animals in need and train students and rescue, medical, shelter, and other professionals in the principles of trans species psychology and trauma recovery. They holds Two doctorates, one in ecology and one in psychology, and a master's in geophysics. I wonder what she does with her spare time. Um, her website, um, the Curlis Foundation's website, can be found at www. Now I'm going to spell it: k-e-r-u-l-o-s. dot It's a fascinating website, and you can see pictures of a lot of the animals that have been rescued. and and are being treated and and are sheltered there. Um, It's an amazing, amazing organization. So please check it out, and um, if you're so inclined, even donate to it, because it's it's an amazing way of helping animals to overcome what we have, you know, sort of put upon them, unfortunately. So... Welcome to the show, Jet Gay. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Hi, nice to be here.
1: I have to tell you your your conversations with um, Charlie Russell was the most one of the most fascinating books I've read in a long time.
2: Well that's that's wonderful to hear. I hope Charlie can hear it too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure he can. This this was a man who um you know, you have to say he had a calling. It just Seemed that that he really didn't fit or belong in society as it was evolving, and and chose to become a part of a strangely a far gentler organization as far as living with the bears and being around the bears. Yes, yes, that's true. That's
2: a very good description.
1: He um, um he grew up um, I. I I can't remember when he was born but but he grew up on a farm and lived with the animals he he quit school very early on and um he just he he was he well walked to a drum of his own you know he beat the beat of a separate drum so to speak um did, now when did you meet him
2: um well we worked together for 9 years and um, Charlie passed away about a year and a half ago. So um, I have to say that I'm very excited that the book will be coming out before the second year of his passing. <laughs> um, Charlie actually, I'll just fill in a little bit more for, for your listeners, is that Charlie was born and raised in Alberta, Canada, just over the border from in the United States from Glacial National Park. And so The sort of the sister park, if you want to call it, uh, in Canada there is is Waterton, and that's right where Charlie's uh, ancestors, his grandfather, who came from England, and his grandmother, on one side of the family, came from Ireland, and that's where they um, lived and they uh, built their homes. And then in the next generation, which was Charlie's father and mother, the children they um, ran an outfitting business. So. Wealthy individuals who were hunters, as well as just visitors, would come from largely back east, and uh, they would go out. and In the book, you can see some photos, as well as I just want to bring attention to another <clears throat> book, which I'll send that link. and It's about um, it's edited by Beth Toe, who's a close friend of and former uh, partner of Charlie, and it's a beautiful book which really celebrates uh, Charlie's grandfather. Um, uh, riggle Bert Riggle, who came from England, and it shows he was a photographer himself and it's, so it's a sort of panorama over three generations of that area and It shows pictures and talks about the stories of of charlie 's own experience as a young boy growing up with his parents and his his grandparents when they were um, ranchers there wasn 't really a farm his grandmother had a had a you know did some farming and such, but it was largely. Outfitting where they would take people out, and there's these long photos incredible photos of showing these long trains of, of horses and women visitors, you know, in their long dresses and boots, you know, who would be climbing rocks. It's quite oh, inspiring. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's where Charlie grew up, and that's how he grew up, and those are the ethics and the ways he grew up. Um, but he did deviate uh, from his both his grandfather and his father. Uh, in the fact that he he lived like them, he learned it, but and he was they were one with nature, but he really developed a very different take on the relationship with bears in particular, but nature on the whole.
1: Well, I think I, I think most of us, and and in in reading in in reading your book, you you come to understand uh, far more greatly. I think that. Um, they They really are gentle animals, i mean basically they have uh they, they live in 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 groups but but they don't have the the horrible um, fights and 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 battles that the the humans do i the the more i I learn about all of this the more i i 'm beginning to see how we have a lot we can learn from the animals they they really um They coexist with one another. I mean, yes, there are times when there there are battles and things like that. You know, important things when hormones get going. But for the most part, they they really they have territories of their own, and they they are respectful of one another, and and the mother bears especially. um, They spend three years teaching their cubs how to how to how to survive in in nature and be a part of it and I think one of the most important things that that you wrote about with Charlie was that he got to um you know he wasn't understanding their behavior he was thinking like they were, and he got to know them really to know how to be them i mean he didn't walk around on all fours and stuff like that but he understood them to a far greater degree than most people do. Um, you know, today bears who are who are mingling in society like I have some that live in the woods near me, but but they're so used to people that that they aren't really being act- actually any more true to their nature. And Charlie lived with them for you know he he lived here in Canada and then in Russia, so that so that he spent a great deal of time he probably preferred the bears to people although he seemed to be a very sociable person when he was with groups of people where he could talk about bears yeah I, I, I really think that
2: Charlie the way he viewed the world was that humans were the ones that are the oddballs and they are um, even in the anthropologic record <clears throat> that there are present what we call the dominating society which is based on Um, an understanding or at least a perception of ourselves as separate and more privileged than the rest of nature and other animals, and is very, which I would call predatorial, and and it's a colonial type, it's a colonial foundation. And that is very unusual in the human record. Most of the other humans, um, which even today in, in traditional indigenous societies, live in a much more integrated and I would say a very much more respectful, kind of based on reciprocity which this particular dominating culture, which is a blip. Again, I want to emphasize this is a blip in the anthropological record. So, you know, it, it's this, these types of humans, not humans in general, but these types of humans in which we're living in this society, which have really uh, um, sort of taken a dog leg away from the, from the rest of nature. And Charlie was very much um, uh, amiable and, and had close friends and spent a lot of time with other humans, um, but that you know, but he also had very very deep relationships with bears and other animals and, and nature in general, and he saw that entirely consistent. It was only mm-hmm. uh, really how, uh, again, these particular humans of which you know I'm part of, you know, in this society, really demands a privilege over other animals. So he really regarded. The rules of nature, the rules of what he learned growing up as a boy, but extending it to include other animals and learning from animals in the sense of understanding how, you know, when we walk out in nature, if we feel stressed out, when we go on vacation, many of us go to nature, go out in the woods or go to the beach or desert um, to calm, to feel calm, a sense of well-being and a sense of peace. And uh-huh. that is a reflection of, you know, what he would call... Nature's rules, you know, of everyone fitting in and living with respect and reciprocity. So, so we have a lesson right in front of us without even listening to the bears, of of <clears throat> why nature feels so calming and relaxing. For most people, um, maybe someone who lives in New York City, like a friend of mine, you know, doesn't necessarily find it because they're used to the city. <laughs> but in general, nature really is a salve and an antidote to the kind of conflict and chaos that we live in. So Charlie really listened in. Um, you know, his, his course of relationships with bears was, was not always positive. When he was growing up, as he talks about, you know, his grandfather and father shot bears. As soon as a grizzly would show up, that was the, it still is, um, sort of the, the you know, modus operandi of, of ranchers and farmers, Or and you even see that today. When black bears or even grizzlies show up near a town or a puma shows up in town, They're immediately eradicated. They're immediately driven out. And this was something that Charlie grew up with um, in a ranching type of, of context. But then he learned, and one lesson in particular that's in the book, kind of a hard lesson, is that really to respect bears as we might, hopefully, we respect each other as fellow humans in that way.
1: Well, it isn't just the bears. I mean, you know, he had I mean, this this book is amazing. People, I mean, among other things, first of all, it's beautifully written, but the photographs in it are are just awe-inspiring and you can see, you know, he he didn't treat them as a pet. He treated them as an equal. And and it wasn't that he was bringing them up to his level or him going down to theirs. It was it was a shared experience because of course, these bears didn't have to be friendly to him, but he didn't threaten them, and so they they sort of adopted adopted him into their um, their culture, and and you know it it's you can see that there is trust and there is respect, and and he often you know he said that he never he never carried a gun, he carried bear spray just in case, but that he rarely if ever used it. Um, And And he never, I have
2: to correct that, is that you know when he was growing up he carried a gun because that's what people did, but then when he was a teenager he stopped carrying one, and he never carried bear spray until when, much, much later, and that was when he was uh, in Russia, which was much later, and he only carried bear spray, and and we'll get into that, because he was taking care of these orphan baby bears, uh, and, and there might be another bear coming up. And only when he was in Canada in very later years, Um, he started to carry bear spray, and as he says, you know, he usually forget it. Um, And the reason why was because bears have changed in many ways uh, because of the relentless hunting, the relentless um, abuse, and, um, you know, using noise makers and and darting them and scaring them away and killing them. So uh, this is my previous work, which we might touch on later, is the notion that all other animals, uh, elephants, bears, pumas, rattlesnakes, any, all of them have the same brains and minds that we do, relatively speaking, and are susceptible to psychological and physical trauma. So the only reason he, he ever carried that was because um, these are traumatized bears. I mean, they are basically most all bears have either um, been shot at and have bullets in them uh, um or they've had they've seen their mother shot or they've heard that they've been hunted down in some fashion, and all of those really qualify as criteria for psychological trauma
1: well now he he blended in because there was just something in him that you know he felt he had to do this and and it was it was his life's calling, which i mean when you see what he was able to do and, 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 you know, be with them, um, y- you know, y- you kind of get a little jealous. And, you know, you look at your, your cats and your dogs and you think, wow, could, you know, frankly, I do it with my cats. But, and, and, you know, if I remember when my mother died, I could feel the pain that one of my cats had over her passing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just, it was, it was palpable and you know and some of the others weren't quite quite as as traumatized but i don't think it was that they were picking up on my energy as much as they were picking up of a sadness of their own and i don't think we give animals enough credit for having the capacity to understand and to have fun and to uh, to grieve when when somebody when someone passes. I mean, I, I think we we people as a whole look upon them as quote unquote animals, not not capable of the intensities that they actually can feel and respond to.
2: And, yes, and you, you know it's a cost. I think there's also, I mean, there's a lot coming out um, within science that's, like I said, I've written extensively about psychological trauma, but there's really a reticence, even though people talk about it and they're starting to appreciate animals more. Uh, the really admitting and putting that admission and knowledge into practice is very challenging because our whole culture, again, this dominating society, which is not all humans, it's this particular Um, last few hundred years that is now dominating the planet, is built on uh, the assumption that animals are to be used for humans. So they're eaten, they're consumed, they're abused, they're um, used for entertainment, all sorts of things, or testing. And our society is built on that legal and ethical capacity to do those things to animals. So when we admit, as science actually says, that very few scientists actually Um, put this into practice, that animals have the brains and the minds and the feelings and the capacities that we do. Um, What that does is that basically it just removes, it dissolves any kind of plausible rationale for doing what we do to other animals. So in other words, it's a total paradigm shift in its strictest sense, and it really stops, quote-unquote, civilization in its tracks just the fundamentals of how we live every day
1: oh absolutely now he he spent a great deal of time in canada with the bears and they taught him a great deal and your book you know starts out with with you know him um learning to understand them better by watching them and and being around them and you know, by the time you get done reading your book, you know you don't want to go up and hug one for sure. But there's a, there's a greater respect that you gain from reading your book and understanding that these are not horrible monsters. They're 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 really sweet if given the chance to be. And well, I and think you know that
2: Charlie makes this point as well: is that the fundamental nature and culture and ethics of grizzly bears, brown bears, and the bears, as well as other animals, is very welcoming, uh, very Uh specific um, to humans, as well as other animals. Um, And that being said, uh, it it also reflects that there's an intrinsic ethical difference. um, That, you know, as he said, you know, not all bears like me. You know, not all bears, you know, just like any other person. Some you get along with, some you don't. But there is a very much of a live and let live ethic within the animal kingdom. And he underscored, you know, people say, oh, you know, they're so violent and everything like that. Well, they're not violent relative to the kinds of things that we do. When they, uh, deer, like a puma stalks a deer, and there's a story about that, uh, Charlie's account, uh-huh. uh, they kill a deer. He saw that the, um, the family members of the deer were grieving, but they know how the rules are. They know that that's what a puma's job is as such, right? <laughs> and they, even though they suffer from it, no one likes to to suffer pain and and see the loved ones killed. But they understand that that's kind of the rules of the game, and they also understand that you know things settle back and are peaceful again, because the puma now has food and life goes on in that way. Which doesn't mean in this case that the deer don't you know feel grief, and I've I've witnessed that myself here in in Oregon among the wildlife. So the other thing is, is that you know the reputation of bears has been false from, from day one. Uh, these stories that were brought actually from Europe, from Europe, to the United States, to North America and Canada, uh, were they wiped out all the wolves and all the bears? And those were stories that really did not have any foundational truth to them, and they became promulgated here, and um, and it became used as a tool and the wildlife agencies. Uh, across the board, you utilize that um, false picture um, for their for their own gain in the sense of uh, it, it's it 's a tool to keep uh, people away humans from from other animals, and that relates to economics and and things like that, and also the hunting culture, so it justifies why bears need to be killed, why even like deer herbivores that there 's overpopulation where there 's no overpopulation so All of these ideas that we have with bears and and other animals is really built on a set of myths. And that's what Charlie set out to do. Charlie set out, I mean, he's not a stupid guy. He knows he has to learn nature. You know, This is part of it is we've lost our ability to sense and to perceive and understand this kind of deep knowledge that indigenous people and, and individuals like Charlie, who is a kind of an indigenous person by really becoming part of nature, or, or recognizing and embracing it, and living by nature's rules, um, understand. So, he was also very perceptive, and he, you know, would be able to pick up um, where's a bear at. And he would always say that, you know, always listening, um, not necessarily with his ears, but with all of his senses. I used to call it listening with your eyes. That's what he did, and and he would, you know, he said people need to pay attention about where an animal is at. You know, a bear is not just standing out there. A bear has personal history. There's personal, the current circumstances, all of these things. And by really caring, and that was such an important concept for Charlie, you know, to care. When you care about some someone, you pay attention. That was another term he used. You pay attention and you listen to them. And so what you do and how you think is not predicated on your own agenda, but rather when you care for someone... Trying to understand what they need and where they're at.
1: Well, I think one of the other um, amazing qualities that he exhibited was that he did. And, and I don't want anybody to think he did not domesticate these bears. Mm-hmm. He he shared time and space with them on their terms, so that so that he learned, uh, you know, what the signals were, and he learned. Um, respecting them when they when they gave him the indication that they didn't want him to bother them anymore. So, um uh, it was it, you, you know, you think about it and you you begin to realize that in in today's society that that somebody was able to to first of all find a population of bears that hadn't been so traumatized that they distrusted humans. Yeah. And and he had to go far and wide to get that, too. So, um, you know, the bears, like around here, raid garbage cans and stuff like that. And, and people make noise and drive them off. And But, you know, they have to eat, too. And it just, uh, and, and on, when he was ranching, he found that if he left a dead cow for the bears to eat, they wouldn't attack the herd. I mean, you know, they have to eat, but they don't need to kill more than they can eat. So, yes
2: um and and he went to travel he he spent you know most of his life in canada um and he decided to go to russia um in the nineties and The purpose of that was he was trying to find a place everything he did was really he was to learn uh, deeply about nature and animals and bears, but also he was doing this for a purpose, and that was to illustrate um to people about how an alternative way of living in nature and with bears. And because in North America, um, within the United States, um, grizzly bears literally live in a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of their habitat. They're they're up in Alaska, and there's obviously more in Canada. But relatively speaking, they have been, like I said earlier, relentlessly hunted and continue to be harassed, um, both lethally and just in terms of um, driving them out of their habitat and that's a, just an important thing to think of. When we build a house, when we go into these areas, we are taking away the homes and the livelihoods of these animals. So he wanted to go to find a place, and in, in Russian, Kamchatka, which is the Russian Far East wilderness, seemed like a very good candidate because up until you know before the Soviet Union fell, there was very, for one thing, it's very isolated. You know, it's, it's uh-huh. um, really a tough, <laughs> I mean, the, the weather is very severe, the climate is severe, it's very isolated, there's not a lot of access to it. And then before the Soviet Union, it was very restricted, partly for military reasons and also historically. And so he hypothesized, well, maybe this is a place where I can go and I can show people that it's easy to live with bears um, in, in a good way and in peaceful coexistence with those bears who haven't been so traumatized so that was his hypothesis, and he went there in the 90s. Um, and indeed, it, it was that, relatively speaking. But by that time, they had been exposed, and unfortunately, to, to poachers. And that's still a very, very serious problem. But relatively speaking, it was, um, an, an, you know, much more pristine. So he spent a good 10 years there, um, really learning even more deeply. Um, and again, Charlie lived all of his 70-some years with bears. I mean, you know, there's a story in the family, which is kind of legend, that he was on, you know, in his crib or something on the front porch, and a grizzly female came up and while well, it was in his crib and you know, kind of looked at him because he was crying. And uh, it's, you know, the family seems to report that well, she looked at, thought everything was fine, and, and left. So, you know, you know, but he really <laughs> was out outside with bears all the time. And um, and yet, you know, that was something, is that he, he learned how to tune in. And when he went to Russia, he had a very different role as well, a very different dimension. Not only are those bears brown bears, which are sort of cousins, if you want to call it, of grizzlies, um, there's a different, you know, it's like a different culture and a society. But also he had a unique role um, being invited into the bear society as a mother bear.
1: Yes, I, now... He took care of cubs, though, while he was here in Canada as well, didn't he? Um, not formally, no. That was all in Russia. Oh, okay. Because um, y- you know, I, they didn't just give him the cubs; they were orphaned cubs. That um, I, I loved the story of him, you know, taking them on and realizing that he had to train them. He had to become a mother bear. Yes. and and train them, and, and I just thought it was phenomenal how he studied and how he, you know, tried to prepare them, and, and of course bears in that, in that area, they actually do hibernate. I know the bears here don't hibernate year-round. Um, they may nap, but they don't sleep for the whole winter because I guess it's not cold enough or... Or it's not quiet enough, or I, I don't know why, but they, they are up and around most of the winter. But um, I, I guess in Russia, it does get colder and darker, and so they, they are able to sleep the season through. But, but to have the pictures of him teaching the cubs how to play and how to fish, I mean, are just precious. Um, he, was, he was a remarkable, remarkable man and so oh, how no, did the, it come the what, hmm? how did it come about that he had the two two or three cubs that, that he was going to be a nanny to oh well there's kind of two dimensions of that i was going to say that i didn't mean to interrupt you it was
2: that um that you know so he decided he went there in sort of a to russia to kamchatka to explore and where would be a good place and um, he made plans, you know, with building. I mean, this is, this is a big project in the sense of it's in the middle. Everything had to be flown in on military. Russian, you know, the Russian helicopters, you know, all, and he built his own cabin there. Um, but it took a different turn when he was asked um, by, uh, that there were these um, three cubs that had been orphaned when their mother was shot, and they were brought to a local zoo in Kamchatka. And he was, said, he was asked, um, would you be able to take these cubs? and um, rear them and, and reintroduce them into the wilderness again, because otherwise they're going to be killed. And, and that really happens. A lot of times um, poachers and hunters will take a, kill the mother, they'll take the cubs, they'll have them as pets, and then they become big bears, and it's just not a good situation. So, you know, he said it was so terrible, it just was heart to see them in these terrible cages and, you know, kind of being taunted and fed by zoo visitors. And so he agreed. And um, they, you know, he managed to get it done, (laughs) and they arrived. And he really had to, he he had a tremendous amount of a very deep knowledge about um, brown bears, grizzly bears, less so about brown, even though they're similar. They're still different, as I said. Um, And he had to, as you said earlier, he really had to understand bears from the inside out. And it wasn't just... um, you know, really kind of getting into the mind, into the psychology and the culture. Because as you had mentioned earlier, <clears throat> um, most baby bears, they're, they're born in their dens with their mothers and, uh, and they stay in there and then they come out in the spring and they're really under this sort of um, umbrella of, of protection from their mother. And then they're weaned and they, they go out on their own about, when they're about three years old and they spend all that time with their mother which from a psychological and a developmental perspective is that's how their brains and minds and they learn the ethics of brown bear culture, Um, Uh you know, they really, you know, that's that's how we learn. We learn from our parents, you know, from neurosciences talks about how our brains and our minds and our emotions are tuned to this microcosm of the family in which we're born into. And that's very much the same for, for bears and other animals. So Charlie had to recreate that. Not just teaching them. And in fact, he said, you know, at first he said, I really had this kind of hero image of myself that I was going to teach them and everything. But he said they actually really knew innately so much. A large part of his contribution and that was so necessary was the psychological and emotional and social um, grooming, if you want to call it that, that he did with the bears. Because you know, this could be a human or it can be a bear, if they don't have this kind of psychological and social um, tuning of their brains and mind, then they they turn into, you know, bears that don't know how to act like bears. I mean, we have that in our society where we have a lot of what we call relational trauma, where children and babies um, have a, a, a poor relationship, neglect or abuse, um, by a parent, and then there's all these other psychological and emotional issues which develop throughout life, and that really affects um, the mind and the body, and the same thing goes for the bears, and, and in fact, a lot of uh, conservation reintroduction programs with bears and other animals have failed because they have only really seen to uh, the bears you know, physical needs, and not necessarily, it doesn't have to be a bear, it could be a bird or anything, um, they really have seen to the physical needs but not the psychological, uh, social, and emotional needs. And the other dimension of that is Charlie can't just bond with them as a human with a bear. Um, he has to be a mother bear, like I said, from the inside out, so that the bears are tuned into the bareness Um, like a mother bear would have, teach you that. And those are embodied, the ethics and ways of interacting and perceiving and communicating with other bears. So he started off with these three, and it's incredible. Charlie's written several books, and I really encourage people to to read them. They're beautiful. And um, he did this successively for ten bears over the next ten years there was another part to it dimension which i mentioned which was something that was a surprise and i think it really speaks very deeply of who charlie uh was and that was within the first year there was a bear a female bear um whom he later called brandy because of the color and texture of her beautiful you know kind of golden brown coat um he'd seen her around <clears throat> and um as he said, unbeknownst to him, she'd been sizing him up, and one day she up and left him with her cubs, and she went off to do mother bear business, you know, like he said, scare off a male bear, but find food, etc., so she really kind of hired Charlie, as he says, you know, he didn't have much say, he was somewhat press-ganged into this role as nanny, and that's kind of, that's extraordinary, um, in the sense of You know, and I go into that in the book. I mean, the fact, you know, for one, any mother, you know, it's a big deal to leave your child in the care of someone else other than yourself. And he was a human. And all of the humans that the Bears had encountered there pretty much were, you know, carrying guns and and killing them. So Uh they picked up on Charlie. So that's really important, two things. One, who Charlie was that he had cultivated and, and, or, you know, he didn't carry all of the stuff that we carry, that which are barriers and that are very hostile and off-putting to animals. He didn't have any of those. And he had the qualities also, sterling, essential qualities that other bears admire, a mother bear, knows that it's not just looking after a bear for food. It has to do with, again, this psychosocial and emotional tuning. And then the other thing we learn from that is the mother bear herself, is her first pes- pes- capacity to detect these things. And it really underscores the sensitivity and the depth of other animals that we really overlook and kind of oh, create yeah. them like cartoons.
1: Well, I think what, what amazed me so when, <clears throat> when she did... Hire him without him knowing it, um, and 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 the babies just kind of looked at him timidly, and he realized he he laid down on his back and waved his arms and legs in the air, like the female mother did, and and they were all they were oh yeah I recognize that 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 means you're okay. Um, mm-hmm. He he really I, I I admire so greatly you know frankly. They're so cute, they're the little fuzzy bears, and you kind of do want to cuddle them and everything, but I, 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 that's not what a mother bear actually does. So, I mean, she nurtures them and she keeps them warm and she feeds them and all that, but they have to survive. And I did not know that, that male grizzlies often kill kill cubs and eat them. Well, it's not often. It's they... it,
2: it, it, it isn't often it's it it does happen and it's somewhat rare um and Charlie really didn't understand it, but he did um he he really felt that well for one thing like i said it is rare, and he felt that it had to do with the fact of that um that Bear was somehow feeling compromised um uh-huh. you know in in Russia and also in in Canada or other places where the uh, grizzlies and uh, are and brown bears is that the conditions are very very harsh, and they have a short window, a very very small window, um, from when they emerge from hibernation, and they're very you know you know they're very um, usually skinny they they haven't eaten for six months, and and they are you know they only have a few months to. Get fat again, and to be able to um, withstand the following hibernation. So, if there's any kind of <clears throat> compromise, uh, and then they um, are, you know, sort of desperate for, or if they have, you know, el- if they're elderly or they have an injury or some kind of disease or something, um, okay. and that's pretty consistent, you know, in terms of what Charlie observed. So it's rare, um, but that's really, you know. Th- th- that's another thing of really appreciating uh, how tough it is to make a living in the wild. And, we, we, you know, we don't appreciate it, you know, even if we're not you know, necessarily, you know, particularly wealthy. The way society's set up is there are devices for us or multiple ways to try to find food, even if it's difficult for us for, for social or economic reasons. There's many different ways to do it in the wild. There's not. So the cubs represent a you know, sort of a uh, an injection of a lot of calories. And he um, the, 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 the you know, the other thing is he learned is is that really it's it's less about survival than it is a kind of a living. And that was an important distinction that Charlie taught is, you know, animals are not it's not so much survival, it's really living. And the the difference is is that survival in kind of our culture is this sort of dog eat dog type of attitude, competition and everything. And that's because we see ourselves as separate. And um, and in nature's world and Charlie's, you know, understanding and, and I'll speak for my own, is everyone is feeling a part of everyone else. And so it's really less a survival than retaining and being continuing to be part of nature. And with that difference is there's a really profound ethic. And so mother bears are, are, you know, coaching and teaching their children, and they're giving them the love and attention and teaching them a a way of being, which is a kind of an ethic that is how bear society works. So, you know, if you contrast them, say, for example, with elephants, elephants are considered to be very pro-social, you know, they're all around each other touching and loving, uh, which they are, you know I would argue and so did Charlie that the grizzly bears and brown bears are just as loving they just have a very different way for whatever reason they've evolved differently so it serves and it works for elephants to be in a group they're herbivores they eat grass and and tree bark and things and roots Um, it, it serves them to go around in a group whereas a grizzly bear it doesn't serve them because they have to catch fish and they eat pine nuts they're sort of doing things on their own and working in a group is not necessarily um, commensurate with, with the way they've evolved. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the same sense of love, the same sense of connection, and they don't live in a coherent society.
1: Well, yeah, and I think the one thing that, that came across through, through your book was that um, there is a sort of, uh, I guess I call it telepathy, and you know we we are energetic, we do radiate a field around us, and it i i, I do believe that that animals have a greater sensitivity to what's going mm-hmm. on inside of us and whether they want to be connected to that or not and one yes. of the things you know they 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 will react to um to fear they will react to uh aggressiveness and they'll they'll uh, uh, relax um they'll they'll understand um, anger and and, um, aggressiveness. I I know that um, we had a feral cat here, and it took me six months for her to understand that I wasn't going to pick her up, I wasn't going to hurt her. And and Mm -hmm. it got got to the point where she would come and she would sit on my lap. And, and, you know, it's kind of, I, I do believe that the bears have the same kind of a, Radar, if you will, and that Charlie did not did not radiate fear. He radiated love, yeah. and you know, not the kind that was going to cuddle you and, and tuck you in and mm-hmm. sleep with you or anything like that. But but he and respect. I, I think that that it was the respect as well that he radiated, because mm-hmm. I don't think he would have been accepted had he not. Had the love and the respect and the willing and and, and the desire to learn from them, mm-hmm. they they had to understand it. Mhm.
2: And I think you know it's you know the the underscore the specificity. So if Brandy, uh, that female bear who uh, hired <laughs> Charlie yeah. as a nanny for for three sets of cubs over seven years, so it wasn't just a one off kind of thing. It was this was went on for seven years, three sets of cubs, and. And she was an extraordinary person as well in the sense of her picking up. And not, you know, not everyone is geared in the same way. There's uh-huh. a, You know, it's just like we have differences in terms of, of people clicking. And, and I, I you know, I, I think she really wanted to get to know Charlie, you know, and I think they, they had a really profound relationship. And, uh, you know, so she's an extraordinary individual. And I agree about the energetic. I think something I've experienced and uh, a lot of, people who live in very close to nature and, and deep to it talk about this. Charlie did, certainly. And that was intention. You know, really, and, and I think the other thing of, that came out from, from this book and, and from spending time with Charlie really underscored what, you know, a lot of the spiritual traditions uh, emphasize, and that is self-awareness. You know, uh-huh. to, to, <clears throat> to become aware of yourself what is going on, you know, mindfulness is another word, um, what is going on because of an intention, so, you know, we can catch ourselves like, like you know, just, you were describing your cat, where, you know, you're, you may have had this kind of, you know, intention, but maybe there was something that needed to be worked through, and also the cat, the cat probably had terrible, terrible experiences with humans before, and so, it took her or him a while um to to sort of become a, a cat again <laughs> you know without having yeah. to have this fear response in that way. Um and I think so becoming aware of intention. I experience that myself. We live here in Oregon and um there's lots of deer and wild turkeys and other animals. And I see it palpably. You know, I can get we have a sanctuary as well and you know i can get preoccupied you know i'm working on my computer writing or something and then i i need to go out and and check on the rabbits and the tortoises and um you know whatever and also put out we put Turkeys. out food for wildlife we have a terrible drought here and and because you know the area i mean people call it rural but it's still built up relative to having open habitat for animals they're in great need of of uh, browse and and i can get caught up and i'll go outside and you know, I can see some of the animals' tense, even though I'd known them for years. And the reason why is because they pick up this sort of, what I would call a kind of a, it's an aggression. It's not an active aggression, but it's a kind of a, I'm caught up in my own agenda, right? I'm still in my uh-huh. computer writing space or whatever it is, right? <laughs> and I'm not listening to them. You know, I'm kind of like, I'm going to go from A to B because I've got things to get done, you know? And I'm not uh-huh. intending any harm, but I can tell palpably I have to take a breath because I see them tense, and so I, I stop and I kind of, you know, kind of calm down. And you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not really even showing it externally, but they pick it up in a very, very deep way. And then when I relax and I start listening again, that listening with the eyes, in other words, being receptive, you know, actually, you know, acknowledging and and respecting the fact that they're alive and here and they have a job and a life. You know, it's not just about me. They relax. So you yeah. know they these these you know self awareness is a point and and Charlie really emphasized that a lot, you know um he said, "Try to understand, listen, you know what is that wh- Where are they at, and be aware that you know a bear's got a job, and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to spend time with a human i mean if they they feel like they've got enough food or things are okay. They may in that way, but that's the other thing is that he always felt that um, when people go out to go camping and stuff, they go out to enjoy, which is lovely and wonderful, but they're really not taking into consideration that the bears they see, the deer they see, the fish that they see um, are on the job 24-7. And it's really important to respect um, that they have a life that's very important.
1: I, I think one of the things that that he spoke of which which illustrates what you were just saying um there there was a time where he saw I I don't know if it was a a, a lion or a, a mountain lion or, or a puma or whatever but it had killed um I guess it was a deer or a cow and it had eaten and then it got up and it walked away and it walked right through the herd who who paid no attention to it at all because you know they knew it it was full and it wasn't going to eat anybody else and he thought when he looked at it he thought he wondered you know well maybe if I just walked through they would sense you know and and it didn't mm-hmm. work I, you know they scattered but mm-hmm. it but it's true i you know we radiate a field a field of emotion of of all kinds and and these animals who have, who live in the wild especially are able to pick up on that and either either decide to take themselves away from it or be comfortable with it. I, I know often I will sit on my deck and um, I, I used to feed the birds a lot uh, until a bear decided to make this their luncheonette and then I had to stop. But there were chipmunks and I would go out there and sit and watch the birds and it was very often you know just just being one with the birds and 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 everything that i would find that there were chipmunks you know sitting on my shoes eating you know a sunflower mm-hmm. seed or something
0: and mm-hmm.
1: not not at all frightened and and it was yeah. so cool and and yet you know you you kind of want to reach out and pet them and that's not appropriate but but it was it was it was sort sort of you knew you were in the right place when, when an animal that was not used to humans was not afraid of being next to you. And I, what he must have radiated with those animals um, was phenomenal. And I, get, I guess he would do it with people too. I, I think one of the interesting things, there was another um, researcher who was researching bears as well, but he was terrified of the bears and mm-hmm. that's the one that that you know um passed well passed over un- unfortunately because I, I i don't know what he must have done to the bear because i don't think a bear would sme- sneak up on anybody and attack them so there must have been some antagonism there somehow because well I, he was, i think you're talking there was a couple you know the the, the charlie um
2: you know there there are there were incidents of of individuals that he knew that were relatively seasoned with um with bears and um there were three in particular and and he when when they were killed uh he really d- researched in detail what was going on you know what happened what were the circumstances um to really understand um why this came about? Because in his experience, he felt like, and in his own experience, it never happened uh, that these, all of these incidents, could be avoided. And uh, one in particular, there was one, uh, the Russian uh, biologist, and, and Charlie really uh, admired him. He felt that he had, he'd been living with bears and studying bears for 25 years, and he felt that the, this uh, the Russian uh, had a tremendous um, depth of knowledge. Uh, and he is, was that person that you were talking about. That he realized the man was very, very frightened of bears, despite spending so much time. That he was very frightened of bears, and he ended up um, being killed by a, a brown bear. Um, and uh, basically, he was a photo- he loved to photograph bears, and he basically kept photograph pursuing. Tro- this was in winter, before he he left for from the field to to go home, and it was a, a male. A brown bear, and he would follow the bear and take photos, and the bear would run away, and then the bear would do what they call bluff charges, which are basically, you know, kind of mock types of, you know, saying, get off. And as Charlie pointed out, that there's a lot of subtle things other than a bluff charge that bears will do to let you know that they don't feel like hanging out with you, they don't want you around. And essentially, this man pursued the bear like a hunter. I mean, he wasn't going to shoot him with the gun, but the intent was there. And finally, it culminated where he actually you know went into what they call the day bed with a where you know where a bear, you know, bear through these very dense uh trees and bushes to where uh-huh. a bear might might sleep during the day, and the bear attacked him and killed him and then the bear ran off for two kilometers, so he didn't eat him it wasn't because he was hungry, and he was obviously feeling you know very upset and and scared because a lot of times bears are killed in revenge. Um, in that particular case um, the authorities who investigated it and Charlie talked with them is that they didn't because they felt that there was a justified um, what the bear was doing so you you know that's a I mean it's a kind of an extreme example but you but that's really what Charlie really tried to teach people is that we go out in the woods you know it's like walking you know it's like how would you feel if someone like just opened the door and starts walking in your living room Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 it's not an exaggeration to really understand when we go out in the woods or wherever we are in nature um, that it, it isn't our playground that to be respectful and understand that there's other people living there and uh, that that we are guests um, and I think that's an old feeling um, It's something that that you know my parents even felt when they uh, came here it was like a little cabin and well, you know, seventy years ago, and and there was a lot of they they were newcomers to the area, and there was always a feeling of we're guests here, even though they bought the cabin and lived here. It was really uh, a hum a sense of humility, and I think that was a very important quality of Charlie's. Is Charlie was not egotistical. <clears throat> he was a very determined man. He was a very uh, uh, he'll, he has something says you know that you know people say well he's you know, he's arguing he's not arguing to win he's trying to win he's trying to understand and he's okay. not when he's, like he says you know when people accuse me of being trying to be right he said well you have to be right in the wild you know when you're out in nature because if you're not right <laughs> you're gonna die <laughs> and yeah. so there was a lot of misunderstanding in terms of you know Charlie really embodied uh, a human form. In, in modern days of nature, um, which you know I think really overlaps and is very resonant with many traditional indigenous uh, cultures and people, traditional in the way that they they, they live, just like the animals.
1: I mean, how lucky for you to have spent time with him because um, you know someone like him has so much to teach and and you know it it's you learn. Mm-hmm. Not not in the classroom situation, but by obs- observing and and paying attention. And um, what better way to learn? To be honest, I know. Well, the th- purpose is the... our.
2: Co- hmm?
1: No, go ahead. Oh
2: well, I was going to say just um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you know the, that Charlie and I, our purpose of our collaboration was to further his message about bears, and you know mine was I had this, you know finished. When we met, I'd finished a book on on elephants and elephant PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, it was, you know, and I approached it from the perspective of science, you know, the formalism. And I used science not as a way to tell people who animals are, but as a way to lead other humans into understanding through a familiar and an accepted way of knowing the world, which was science. And... collaborated for that reason is that charlie had written books and he lectured copiously and people really admired him but he was very frustrated and and very sad um about the brutality with which bears were treated despite his evidence of showing um how to live with bears and how bears really were which was resonant with indigenous peoples before europeans came in this case north america is that, uh-huh. um, you, know, you know, obviously there's differences, and uh, you know, we can't make too much of a generalization, but generally speaking, uh, when Europeans came to North America and elsewhere in the world, there was lots of animals, lots of <laughs> birds, lots of happy forests, and da-da-da-da-da, and there were humans that were living there, the indigenous. And even though they might kill a bear once in a while, and vice versa, it was relatively... Negligible, and it was it made there was a maintaining of nature's coherence and integrity. So it really is that's an important point. When we talk about humans, we have to. I said this earlier, but I'm underscoring it. It's not being human; it's how we're being human. And Charlie was really an example of a different way of being human that would be integrated, and uh, supportive, and in a sustainable way live on this planet. And our collaboration was because, although, like I said, Charlie was admired and he's talked with a lot of ranchers. He was a rancher himself for 18 years, and he lived very well with bears. He worked with ranchers to convince them that it was not necessary to shoot a bear. Um, and he, uh, you know, I worked, though, but because, you know, there's a, it's still prevalent in our society that, you know, it, those are stories. Those are nice little stories and they're marginalized even though I think deep down a lot of biologists really knew really listened to Charlie and was respectful but there's a fear thing because it's like well if i go away from knowledge what you know from the collective knowledge of science that makes people feel very vulnerable it's, it's unfortunate so our but collaboration was saying i take my degrees and take my scientific acumen as a way to create a kind of an undercarriage for his experience
1: but in, in, in a way, I mean when you look at the indigenous people were here, the first families, they only killed for food. And and um you know, they and usually they asked permission and then they thanked the, the animal that they had they had killed and they used their skin, they, they used all parts of it so that they they were respectful of what they were doing and how they were doing it and I often thought that if you went back far enough in history, you, you easily could come to a time where, where people were more comfortable with the animals and there was a greater trust between them. Um, I, I think that, that with, with science and, and all of that, we have gotten away from the, the, the ability to understand and to communicate on some level and be respectful of other forms of life. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's, a sad, it's a sad comment on society when we see something we don't understand and immediately we're, we're fearful of it and we attack it or we try to drive it away. And that's just not the way nature, and, and by nature I mean all of life, that's not the way life is supposed to be. There is a balance here. And we haven't respected it. And by not respecting that balance between animals and, and, you know, the flora and the fauna and and humans, I mean, we can survive as one. But but for some reason there's an ego trip going on here where we have to dominate, and that that won't work. So
0: well, sooner or later. So and that's
2: what we're finding out, you know, finally, that, um, that it's become absolutely obvious and inescapable uh, and that, uh, that we can't live apart, you know, and that, you know, we aren't any different than nature. We're only making ourselves and wanting ourselves to be different from nature. So that is really the challenge that, that we're having. And, and Charlie is an incredible resource because he embodied a way of living, that, um, and an ethic, and a philosophy, and very practical approach to living with nature in such a way that we are, um, that to me is the definition of sustainable, you know, the way Charlie lived and there's his philosophy and everything like that, so, you know, he was incredible, and the only reason that, uh, like I said, I mean, Charlie and I got to, to, to know each other and care for each other, but... Our, our real mission of working together was to articulate something that was um, going to sort of galvanize and, and break through these walls of resistance that um, are largely in the, I mean, it's in the public, but it's promulgated by the agencies, by biologists, yeah. by conservation biologists, and it continues to be, even though there's other science, which says talks about the animal sentience and neurosciences, it's a very, very, uh, in, in sort of in, in not very porous community. And so it was trying to use my credentials and the lens of science to be able to sort of deconstruct, <laughs> take down the bricks, kind of like the Berlin Wall, you know, take the bricks uh-huh. down to really see through. Now, in the book that I wrote, um, uh, it was after Charlie died, um, we had written many things together in terms of really integrating his perspective Uh, and and his way of learning with the science. But um, after he died, I wrote this de novo, and and I did it in the way that my purpose of the way I wrote it, it has no science in it whatsoever, except the last chapter, which is about quantum mechanics. But um, it has no science, and the purpose of that is we don't need it. You know, Charlie had, I said that it's Charlie's science. It is his science not with uh-huh. the science of the culture that we've created, but the science of nature in that sense. And I really was as much the reason I even called it that, was talking with bears, because that's essentially what Charlie did and, and what yeah. the bears did with him and the conversations. And I really was um, working very hard, and I hope it succeeds, is as much as possible for a reader to read and hear Charlie as if he or she is listening and walking with Charlie uh, among the bears.
1: It must have been an amazing experience to walk with him and the bears. Truly. Um, well, for
2: him, it was very natural. You know, it was. You know, and he walked. That was the other thing. His walking, um, his being. You know, what we would call in nature was his way of also. Um, you know, this, this is an ethic. It was the way of, of, it's just like when, you know, we find out what's happening in our neighborhood and we read the news. That was for Charlie. That was his uh-huh. newspaper. In fact, George Adamson, you know, famous of Born Free, you know, he, he talks about, it. I think he has a quote, something like, um, that, you know, when he lived in Africa for so many years and among the lions, I think his quote is, I haven't read a newspaper in 40 years. You know, the news that I read is in the is on the ground, is in the tracks. And and I I think that encapsulates for Charlie. You know, this is also absolutely critical, is that, you know, we need to start looking at other animals. We need to start looking at, quote, unquote, nature as essential, so that the grizzly bear and having the grizzly bear thrive and live well is more important um, or just as important as our own life. And so we have to start understanding that.
1: Oh geez, yeah, and and I think one of the the amazing things is, I mean, there are there are a limited number of individuals out there. Charlie was one, you're another. Um, Jane Goodall. I mean, there have been people who have blended in, become comfortable with, and been able to to be. And to know the animals, and and I I love the fact that he said to know them, but not to know them, but to truly know them from the inside out, and yeah, understand
2: was the word he used. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and 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 it just it it it's not putting their behavior in human terms, but it's understanding their behavior in their terms, which yeah. I think is is such a difference because. I mean, you you kind of make them people to understand them, but they're not, and and you have to respect where they're coming from and and how they're living, and not interfere with it. And that, mm-hmm. to me, is is the most profound thing ever. Um, I I think that the the foundation that you have created. Um, did I say it right? By the way. It, it, Carulus?
2: It's Carullo Center uh for nonviolence. Carullo.
1: Yes. Okay. Um every now and then when I'm interviewing somebody I know that there's a word that I am just gonna stumble over constantly. And that was one of them. <laughs> um is yeah. is this is this love of and understanding of did this come did did the center come from your investigation with the elephants and and you're ch- coining the term um, trans species psychology is that is that how the uh, foundation came about?
2: Yeah, um, I. My, I began my uh, doctoral work, my second doctoral work in, in psychology with, I mean, at the time it was mainly just this intuition. It wasn't any grand plan. The grand plan or, or some of this sort of soul spark in me was how to help animals in the world. And, uh-huh. again, at the time I just kind of was responding to something that, you know, a soul response by delving into this, but later I can actually, you know, put it into words that make some sense. And what I was really trying to do with my that work with elephants was to um, find collective language, and I use science as our epistemic authority. Um, it's not the end all, it's just something that's used. So use that collective language to express what I have experienced all my life personally. So these internal... Um, subjective experiences, and I was trying to find some collective to be able to communicate to, to people um, my experience and understanding, and what I hoped would help them understand animal experience. You know, of course, I can't assume, but certainly things resonated. Uh, my perception was resonated with what I experienced, and I began with um, Elephant's um, not out of any particular, again, plan, and, and, you know, I kind of, that's kind of my life, I mean, I have this agenda, internal agenda to save the world, that kind of thing, <laughs> and in particular really help animals, um, and so it's, you know, my my arc in my life has taken sort of different turns, but I had, it started in, I guess, 1996 when I first went to Africa, and that was a lion study, I was with the National Science Foundation, and it, it, there was a, a lion thing going on, and During that time in South Africa, um, it was uh, post-apartheid, and prior to that, uh, the country had been gearing up to when apartheid would would fall, and to repopulate the uh, the reserves and the parks, national and provincial parks, with what they call the big five, which are the big tourist attractions, elephants and lions and Uh, Cape buffalo things, um, because they had been all extirpated, all been wiped out, they'd been killed. So they were bringing them back from all parts of Africa in a haphazard way to fill the parks uh, for ecotourism. And so at that point when I was there, I was woefully ignorant and I was focusing on lions. And uh, I heard about this story about these elephants, and the park ranger had told me about these young male elephants who had been discovered. In, these, in a couple of parks to be the quote-unquote perpetrators of killing uh, over a 10-year period over 100 uh, endangered white and black rhinoceroses. And in addition to killing them, they, these elephants, um, in some cases, had sexually assaulted them. So <clears throat> at the time, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it, I just kind of went, oh, you know, it was, I mean, I wasn't really, it didn't really hit me. Um, again, like I said, I was focusing on lions, and frankly, <laughs> what was really sticking out were these two elephants that had been zoo elephants. They were taken from Africa when they were babies and exported and brought into a zoo, and a gentleman who had owned them years later um, developed a campaign to to bring them back. It was quite a noble act, and they were reintroduced, and these were elephants that had lived in circuses all their life, and so um, <laughs> say when they... Saw their former owner. They did their usual trick. They sat back and they raised their their arms. I mean, it was actually you know a very positive thing that the fact they did that was was upsetting. But I thought that was weird. I mean, that was kind of what was on my mind of like, oh my god, you know, seeing elephants doing circus trips, you know, in in the wild. Um, but when I returned and and later and I you know embarked on this. Um, this path, that came back, and it just hit me, and that's when I, you know, being in psychology, I I started to look through that lens at these elephants, the young males that had killed uh, so many rhinoceroses. Now, elephants are, it was extraordinary. Elephants are pacific. They um, are herbivores, so they're not like killing a rhinoceros to eat the rhinoceros, and, Uh I mean, it was extraordinary, and the fact that there were a hundred rhinoceros, are over 100 rhinoceroses killed, uh, spoke of something that you couldn't even brush off as quote-unquote anecdotal, like, oh, isn't that an interesting story? It was statistically um, significant. So I looked through that lens, and that was unusual because, in general, elephants in the wild, animals in the wild are looked at um, as behavioral objects. So people study mythology, the study of animal behavior or animal behavior. And that's a different approach than is used for humans. Humans are looked at as psychological beings, which means they have an inner life. They have a psyche. And how behavior is related is that because we think and feel in certain ways, then we behave and do things and say things in certain ways. And that part was cut out, has been cut out traditionally um, or conventionally for, for non-human animals. Now, they are used in, in, um, in, in biomedical experimentations uh, for monkeys, cats, all sorts of animals. Uh, they call them animal models that are used in lieu, in, in surrogates, um, uh, for humans to look at human psychological, what they call psychopathology, and all sorts of things. And terrible experiments are done on chimpanzees, cats, and other animals, rats, Because there is an understanding that they have the same brains and minds that we do, but ethically and legally, we're not able to do those things to them that we do to animals. But generally speaking, scientists will not admit to that. So it's known, but it's never admitted because, again, as I said in the beginning of our discussion, that would overturn all of of, that, threatens to overturn the entire engine of our society. So when I looked at the elephants, I you know all of this thing popped out. I mean, all the science was there. All I did was put the pieces together. And as I say, I opened my mouth. (laughs) And and you know we we you know animals like I said in animal models where animal models are used, animals are used as sort of a model, as kind of a substitute to probe um, human behavior, human culture, human psychology. And actually, Jane Goodall's work, that kind of work, is to look at primates as, um, you know, how, in fact, a lot of people look at at, at primates, chimpanzees uh, for understanding the quote-unquote biological roots of warfare, Um, assuming that, you know, we evolved, we're evolving beyond chimpanzees, but this is an example of why and how we fight with each other, which is actually erroneous, which I can get into later. But anyway, so um, it popped out very easily, and... I asked a very famous scientist, I said, you know, I'm doing my dissertation, and I understand that it's a convention in all the papers that I read that we take information about what we know to animals and apply it to humans. So that's what they call inference, Um, you know, knowing something about one thing or someone and then applying it in another case. And I said, but what about the other way around, taking what we know about trauma, psychological trauma that are, you know, uh, damages and injury to the mind and brain and body, and applying what we know about humans to another species. And this very famous scientist said, "Neuroscientists, says, yes, that's true, but it's not done. And at the time, I really wasn't, you know, I was very ignorant, and I really wasn't aware of, you know, why. <laughs> and I called yeah. it bi-directional inference, and that's the point of it. That's a very important one. That's how science functions, but like I said, won't admit it. What I know about... An elephant, I can apply to a human. What I know about a human can be applied to an elephant. It goes both ways. But the important thing is people say, well, how do you know? You know, you can't project. But we do that all the time. Like you and I are talking, and and I'm making tacit assumptions about you, and you're making tacit assumptions about me, with the understanding that um, we might be wrong at something. You know, I might think that, oh, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, you have blue eyes, <laughs> you know, and you're assuming that I have red hair or, you know, whatever. I mean, those are sort yeah. of banal types of examples, but I mean that, you know, that you have a certain political ilk or I'm a, you know. So, so, but we function. That's how we function all the time, and that's the point. It doesn't mean that humans and elephants, humans and bears are the same, no more than you and I are the same. It just means that we have, from a scientific perspective, the brains, the minds, the feelings, the capacities to experience things that are overlapping. So um, that, the elephant work then, um, that's what I did for my dissertation, and the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, of these young male elephants fell out very easily. When I delved uh-huh. into their autobiographies or their biographies, uh, they had all suffered a series of very, very profound psychological and physiological traumas. Uh, the babies, they were, all, they were orphaned. um, They had witnessed uh, from helicopters shooting the elephants, killing their parents, their mother, all the family. And then they were translocated. That's another trauma. They were prematurely weaned, which is another trauma. They didn't live in a family which all elephants live in until they're about 10 years old and the females stay. The males go off naturally with another male group. They didn't have any of that. So from a psychological perspective, like I said, They were all recipients of severe psychological trauma. And so the fact that they were doing, which, you know, that, again, as I talked about with the Bears, is all of that, not only the assault, you know, witnessing this kind of profound horror of these guns coming from nowhere and slaughtering and all of this kind of stuff, but they actually did not have the psychosocial and emotional um, infrastructure that a family, a mother you know, the aunties and siblings um, uh, provide for the developing brain and mind. And as a result, and we see this writ large in human societies um, when when children have, you know, sustained abuse, uh, witnessed, you know, genocide or, you know, just abuse and neglect, et cetera, et cetera, um, the kinds of uh, symptoms of violence and aggression and things like that that come out. So that was a long Story to a very simple answer. So <laughs> I published my dissertation, and I coined trans psychology with basically largely speaking to my community of fellow psychologists. But it caught on. It got you know, written up and, and gained a lot of popularity The cover of the New York Times and National Journal, da-da-da-da-da. And it generated uh-huh. a lot of interest. And so I started a nonprofit in response to this widespread interest um, in understanding uh, animal sentience and, and the plight of, of elephants.
1: Now, I, diagnosing is one thing, but how do you work with an elephant who has PTSD? I, what is it that you? How do you help them? I mean, you're not giving them pills, um, so there has to it has to be some sort of um, environmental treatment of some sort. How do you how do you help an animal? that has been through this kind of process and is, and is suffering from PTSD?
2: Well, you know, um, I mean, this is, this is documented in, in, in all sorts of ways in, in, in human um, psychological and and clinical studies for humans. Uh, And you can see this in, in many sanctuaries and in places like that, Uh, the, the, The main, you know, the lesson of trauma is very powerful, and PTSD is very powerful. And I just want to say a couple of things before I delve into the healing of that. And that's because it's a relational concept. Um, It's different in all of the psychology. You know, they have a famous thing called the DSM, which is sort of the Bible that, you know, a, a therapist, you know, for here in the States, you know. A therapist, if they have insurance, has to come up with a particular diagnosis, which has a particular number, and you find that in this Bible, in order to legitimize having an insurance thing like general anxiety, depression, etc.
0: So Uh it was
2: the only PTSD was the only diagnosis that was not considered to be intrapsychically generated. In other words, that it's all in my head, that it was something causal, something on the outside had an effect and caused my mental. Um, my mental condition and so right. it's relational so for the elephants this is just to the healing just real quick is that just knowing what those elephants experienced and how and why and that it deviated from their quote-unquote natural right there um you're almost you're almost all the way there for a diagnosis of, of, of ptsd or, or psychological trauma ptsd has very specific kind of criteria um, the most important thing, and this is what uh, places like uh, Daphne Sheldrick, who's now passed, unfortunately, but her daughter, Angela, called the Sheldrick uh, um, Wildlife Trust in Kenya, and she has taken in baby elephants hundreds um, who have had suffered severe trauma, like I'm, I'm discussing about. Uh, they're under terrible, terrible elephants and, and other animals around the world, as we're aware. And the first thing, I mean, there are some you know, physical types of stuff, uh, but the first thing is you take them away from the stress. So, for example, an elephant like Billy um, at the L.A. Zoo, uh, who's, who's there, I mean, he's been severely traumatized in a similar way, he's from Asia.
1: Uh-huh. Is
2: you take, them from, you, you take them out of the environment, psychosocial and physical environment, where there is stress and threat. So really the first step is safety. And, um, and 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 the zoo, you know, they're constantly, you know, it, it's. And we have to understand again, looking from the animals' perspective. One is elephants never live alone, so, you know, it, it's. I mean, you can't just throw them in with a bunch of elephants in sanctuary. But the point is, is to, to, be in a thriving, welcoming, loving, caring, non-threatening environment, and right there is the first step to healing. And. And then also bonding, you know, being in a healthful, physical, what we would call biophysical environment. And, again, from the animal perspective, we have to understand that that's relational healing as well, because all animals, like Charlie, is a relational being in nature. So the smell and the touch of the grass and the food and being able to move and relate um, is another step toward healing. It's coming back into the arms of, of nature, you know, of mother nature in that way. And then there's various kinds of things. A lot of elephants have tremendous, most of them all have severe physical as well as psychological issues. And we see this in parrots. Um, you know, we see this all in all sorts of animals. And some cases, you they, they, they don't, quote-unquote, heal psychologically. Um, so... In that the trauma being relational is one thing that's really important about that, new, that concept. And the other is the fact is that, which is very, contra- very contrary to our dominating society view of the world, you can't take a pill and be fine. You cannot reverse trauma. That doesn't mean that a person can't you know, regain traction in life and, and, and become revitalized. But we can never, you can't get rid of your experiences. And we can all relate to that, even if um, one hasn't experienced something as severe as genocide or something that okay. is so severe as a child or abuse, sexual assault, or anything like that. We have experiences, and they even could be really positive experiences. And almost 201, I think people will say, that changed me. Could be in little ways, could be in big ways. So the point being is, is our experiences change us. Some for good, some for not good, and that's a very important concept when you come to understanding animal healing
1: oh absolutely i I was fascinated by the fact that you had done so much with elephants and then and then of course bears and and your sanctuary started out with a completely different animal.
2: Well, thats kind of reflects me as like I said, you know. <laughs> I I have a kind of a soul spark agenda, as people who've known me all my life know. Um, But uh, I basically, um, the work I do is kind of like I say is how I cook. (laughs) I go to the refrigerator, (laughs) and I go, okay, what do we have? And I create something from it. And and I had never thought about having a sanctuary, per se, with a capital S. Um, And I guess a formal, I mean, we always had cats and dogs, and I live with a 70-year-old parent. I mean, he and I have known each other since... I was a, a a teenager, he's my older brother, um, and he's been with me for many, many moons, and not just dog years, and um, the formal, I said, seeds of a sanctuary came when someone dumped off a rabbit, we live near the National Forest, and people have a tendency to dump animals off, and I saw this little bunny rabbit out front, and you know, we caught the bunny rabbit, and I called my, a dear friend of mine who's what I call the rabbit Margaret Dr. Margot Demello, who's an amazing person and has worked with rabbits for years and years and years, and asked her, what do I do and how do I take care of it? And, and it was just magical. And um, um, we just decided to uh, take in more rabbits that are in dire need. They're treated very badly. And so then I got a call. I'm giving you guys the short story for your <laughs> – <to> spare you <laughs> – um, we got. I got a call because I'm a scientist. Actually, I called. A number of people contacted me and said, we've heard about this, you know, uh, desert tortoises in, in Nevada. There are going to be euthanized, hundreds of them, because the lab is closing and they can't be reintroduced. So I contacted the director and um, I said, you know, to find out what was going on. And they lost their federal funding and um, they had tortoises that were relinquished or they found that couldn't be reintroduced and uh, they're they're endangered and um because they'd had some kind of injury a dog biting the arm off or you know people mistreated them and so they weren't quite functional and so i said well you know famous last words, let me know if there's anything i can do and he said do you want some tortoises (laughs) so as usual you know mouth works faster than brain and i said yes and i mean then it was like a mad dash because <laughs> i had to figure out you know uh you know how are they going to live you know and is it appropriate and da 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 anyways um like i said we, we got it zero to 60 in just a couple months and we took in 15 endangered desert tortoises and they're all disabled to some degree and Knockwood. it's been five years and they're thriving and and so we became the tortoise and the hare sanctuary. <laughs>
1: so um
2: it wasn't intended, it just kind of happened. Um but it really underscores and we have now roosters and turkeys, domestic animals that need to be rescued that we take in and lots of dogs and cats again because people dump them and they have nowhere uh-huh. to go. And um you know, it but to me it really underscores my our deep philosophy that you know, you read is life is one and that we are kin under skin, feather and fur. And that's the reality, and that's really how I understand I have a new book brewing. Um, My experience is that, you know, all of non-humans, and I'm saying, you know, again, I want to qualify. It's not all humans. It's just the society we're in and have been for a long time, is that they really are non-discriminatory. Now, that doesn't mean a puma doesn't know the difference between another puma and a deer. That's discernment. But generally people function, when I say people, uh, animals in nature function like we're pretty much the same. You know, we all have different jobs. We all have different kinds of ways of making a living. You know, a tree does a tree thing and a pine tree, you know, and a puma does a puma thing and a woodpecker does a woodpecker thing. But basically we're pretty much the same. And we may look different, you know, we may even have, you know, differences in the, you know, way we work, but there's a fundamental ethic, there's a fundamental, and this is a lesson from Charlie, writ large, everyone plays by nature's rules, and everyone's in really one culture. There's variations on the theme, but generally speaking, they all conform. So to me, um, and I, I really feel strongly about this, and this is what our organization is trying to really communicate, is you know for example elephants are valorized i mean there people who like go crazy which is wonderful they're amazing people and they're absolutely in dire need horrible treatment terrible and that is not to negate in any kind of way or undermine their need and their plight and their incredible beauty and their incredible depth of intelligence and hearts but that is not to say that a rabbit or a tortoise or a chicken or a rat is any less or a spider is any less. And that's a really important that's really important is to not impose our system of hierarchy and and um, privilege onto the quote unquote animal kingdom and, and into nature. So really, you know, the principles, you know, and I'm I'm not right, I'm always learning. I'm always, you know, open to learning and seeing things. But generally speaking, you know, and a, and a lot of my work has really been um, intuitive and reflective of, of the way I was raised. And, you know, what I learned, what I came to when Charlie and I worked together, what I brought there was, yes, the science, but those were concepts and words of what I felt naturally and intuitively. And I, when we would converse, it was a conversation. You know, he would say stuff and I would say stuff and we would see, do, are they matching? Are they resonating with each other? And generally speaking, they did. There were differences. Um, there's some mysteries. You know, that, that, you know, one of the things that Charlie and I talked about um, is orcas. you know. And he, he said, you know, what is it about orcas? Uh, and this is also scientifically and historically documented. They don't eat humans. <laughs> they don't harm no. humans. The only time they've, quote, unquote, harmed a human is in captivity when they're under grotesque situations um Uh highly traumatized but there's plenty of opportunities for thousands of years the maori all of the indigenous people who lived with orcas um plenty of time to eat them plenty of people to eat (laughs) but they don't so what is it it's a mystery i mean and i think that you know maybe it's an insight in my other book, Carnivore Minds. I talk about it, you know, to treat it phenomenologically. That's a kind of an internal ethic of orca society, and to understand. And um, and grizzly bear society is different, as well as individuals.
1: Well, the orcas fascinate me because, you know, yes, they're they're. I can see how the ones that are in captivity could easily have PTSD. I mean that that goes without saying, and and even even in the wild, probably if they've been if they've been mistreated, you know anybody will go a little bit nuts if not totally nuts if they're mistreated without reason, and that's what we do to these animals. I mean there's no reason for our mistreatment when we think we're we're treating them kindly by by putting them behind bars and 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 barbed wire and being fed in cement pools and not giving them their mud holes to roll in and all of the all of the important things they get in nature that they're used to i mean that's not being kind to them that's that's being abusive and after a a, a short period of time there's resentment and then there's anger and and then you get lost in in the in the helplessness of your situation and and that's you know what poor billy is experiencing um and for those who don't know billy is a, an elephant in in the Los Angeles zoo and i i looked i tried to find is he still there or has he been released mm-hmm.
2: yet no Mm-mm. he's still there
1: wow yeah and and you know this is an important
2: another important point is that um that there's a very small portion of humans now that are really holding the power over animals. So there are very few people who are in zoos, you know, who own zoos. There are very few people who are hunters that kill grizzlies and and do trophy hunting for for elephants. I mean, it's obviously more complicated because the colonization in these countries has turned it into an industry. However, You know, that's really important to understate that. And it's very important to understand about the agencies who promulgate, as I said earlier, the myths. These are myths about how, you know, watch your back, a grizzly's going to get you. Watch your back, a puma's going to kill someone. Here in Oregon, we have never had anyone killed by a a puma, ever, on record. I think it was like a year ago there was something that it could have been a puma that killed a woman, could have, it I don't know if it was established or not. That's extraordinary. And yet um, the agencies spend thousands of dollars to get hunters to kill pumas. And if they see a puma around, it's immediate, the, the, he or she is immediately killed. And that is an economic and a cultural psychological engine that promulgates that. Um, you know, the agencies profit from the revenues of hunting And it's really, and this is something else I wanted to, I thought about earlier, but I'd like to bring up, is that it's a fear-based, you you mentioned that. And Charlie, again, I think this is a really important message from Charlie. He said, um, you know, fear is good. It's really helpful. Um, You know, but being fear-informed is not the same as being fear-determined. And Charlie never, well, he said, I never, he said, I can't ever say I was not fearful. Sometimes I'd see a bear or something would happen and I'd feel fear. But that is more of like a fear in form, not like, oh, I'm all of a sudden I'm scared and, and everything is being driven by this fear, fear, fear. And uh-huh. really, you, you know, it's a lot of waste of energy, too, um, as he talks about and I, I, you know, render in the book is that it, it blocks out information. So perhaps listen to, you know, think about a time, or you can do sort of the Gedanken experiment. When you're full of fear, the, your aperture of the world and your surroundings immediately narrows. It gets into a tiny kind of pinpoint, right? And, and yeah. that's practical, that's practical <laughs> if you need to focus on the thing that's going to kill you or that's threatening you. However, if that's your everyday way of living, which our society has been engineered to make us function, then we're missing a lot of information. We're missing very important. And I think that's one of the reasons, for example, why all of a sudden global climate and extinctions is like a big surprise is because we're so, we've been sort of pushed into this fantasy of you've got to be afraid, you've got to be afraid of bears, you've got to be afraid, afraid. And also, as Charlie talks about, and you mentioned in terms of animals picking that up. Well, if an animal sees you're fearful, it's like, whoa, you know, it's contagious. Well, what's that right. about? You know, what's going on here? So that's in our relationships with each other. So so a lot of what Charlie Wright about, he would talk about, it's focused on bears, and he talked about being with bears and in nature, but it also has some very um, – very important messages and, and teachings for how we relate to each other. Um, well, I think you know, and in, in, in relation, you know, there's an openness, and as you called it, you know, love. Love in a very sense
1: of its fundamental openness. Well, also, one thing I think it's really important to remember they were here first. Yes. It's, it's the same thing that I've often said about. You know, when the colonists invaded North America, the, the, the indigenous people were here first. And yeah. there's, there's not the respect for someone who has cared for and been with the land far longer than we have, you know, and to assume that we know more. I think one of the, the wonderful things about you and the work that you're doing is you have a comus vitus that would choke a horse so that you have the credentials to back up what you're saying. Um, and, and, you know, scientists like all those letters and everything, so they, they tend to give you more respect, hopefully, because um, I think the thing that really gets me is that had, I mean, this, this land was rich and was full and was balanced. And when the the uh, Native Americans came in, the first families when they were here, they lived in Congress with them. They lived in, um, they they were peaceful with them. They only killed to eat, and when they needed, you know, the food, and when they and they used the skins and the bones and everything, but they didn't mm-hmm. they didn't stockpile it. They 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 were day to day, and and they respected the animals. Um, for uh, you know, unless of course it's something that could kill you, like a rattlesnake or something. But but even then, they stayed out of the way. You know, they paid attention to what, what, where they were walking and how they were walking. And we have evolved to a time of technology where all of that kind of respect is no longer. I mean, if it's it's in everybody, but it certainly is not. You know, one of those things that we see people exhibiting very often at all. And mm-hmm. and we've lost contact as there's a there's a theory out there called earthing and you know mm-hmm. they recommend that you spend 20 minutes to half an hour walking barefoot on the ground for a while to to reestablish your connection with the earth mother to 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 re to to reconnect yourself to that the heartbeat of the earth so that you can more or less become one with it again, I mean there's a reason that that um, the the Indians went barefoot or had moccasins they weren 't insulating mm-hmm. themselves from the earth; they were becoming a part of it and blending with it and listening to the wind and the clouds and you know the weather and I mean they could read they could read and and, and track their way through hundreds and well thousands and thousands of miles. And and yet today we have isolated ourselves from our connection with really what is the source of our own energetic field to a great deal. Mm-hmm. So what what you do and, and how you put information out there is is so important. I mean, I love the fact that you you've also you've established a all bull elephant sanctuary.
2: Where is that located? Well, we're trying to do that. We we were doing that in response to Billy. Actually, um, uh-huh. is that you know one of we were trying to get Billy out uh, from the Los Angeles Zoo, and um, no sanctuary was willing to take him. And, and that's one of the hurdles that is difficult of releasing animals from zoos, is that uh, zoos will typically say, well, there's no place to put him, and it's a practical it's a practical observation so um I'm, someone was working with him and it contacted me to to help billy and i actually wrote a children's book called the elephant letters the story of billy and connie uh, huh. which is uh it's a it's about african elephants um but billy was inspired by billy he's an asian elephant um and it's a story of of the elephant situation and and it's a story of two um, two young elephants billy and connie ka and i who are african elephants and their cousins and uh, Billy's mother and family are killed in a cull, and he's sent to a zoo which I don't mention but is that's Billy and I you feel know, like I said it is from Asia but I made it an elephant uh-huh. from Africa and it's their letters and, and Connie is his cousin and he lives in the wild and so they talk back and forth and it's the arc of their life. but um, we proposed it you know and one of the things is that, that male elephants it's very difficult to find a place for male elephants uh, females tend to be, get along well, and then male elephants are considered very difficult and violent, et cetera. So there's a really misperception, I would say, even in sanctuary. Um, when you look at the natural history of, of elephants, male elephants, as I mentioned earlier, they, they're born in the natal family. It's kind of the nucleus of elephant society. And there's a mom, and then there's aunties, um, older females, and then there's you know cousins and siblings. And females stay. And then when males are, you know, like maybe 9, 10, it depends, years old, they um, are either kicked out, <laughs> not everyone <laughs> wants to leave home, or um, they leave and they join what's called an all-bull area, a male elephant, adult male, male elephant or sort of group. And for the next 15, 20 years, they're basically mentored by these older males. So that's a second phase of socialization, very much like a lot of traditional societies. And, wow. um, and so they're there, and it's only until their early 30s that they become, quote-unquote, sexually mature. So there's this very, very profound, and all of that's nested within these multiple layers um, of elephant society um, that really is, is quite complex. So, again, I like to remind people that when you see an elephant, you're really only just you're seeing a, a fractal of the entire elephant civilization, which has been um, broken up into pieces so um so there's that whole there's a misperception and then no one really takes into account and still doesn't uh the severe impacts of psychological and physiological trauma so there's a bad thing so you know i said okay let's, let's start a sanctuary i mean even we don't i said even if we don't have one maybe it'll get someone to you know get it going and uh-huh. of course you know it's kind of like the tortoises you <laughs> know once it comes out and i we really felt it was strongly because they are an underserved population. Um, they have relationships now, in a sanctuary situation or in going from captivity to sanctuary in a in a country which is non of their not their origin, so for example, it's not in Thailand where there's sanctuaries where there is the possibility of reintroduction or Africa, like Daphne Sheldrick, she reintroduced when the babies had grown and they'd gone through this succession of of mentorship and caring in a, in a, sort of a surrogate way with other elephants and human nannies, just like Charlie, um, uh-huh. they, they had that possibility of returning to wild society as such. So it's very difficult to do that. I mean, you can, there are people do, they, you know, bring an elephant back to Cambodia, bring but, you know, it's very, very stressful. It's very expensive, but it's very stressful. And they're not going to be necessarily, they're not going to meet their family. Um... So, you know, all of these factors have to be weighed. So anyways, we proposed having an all-bull, which would take in uh, male elephants from circuses and zoos. And the purpose of that, uh, which we're still planning and and, uh, working on, is to develop a huge area that will be able to... um, And these are all traumatized individuals. You know, they don't necessarily see an elephant going, hey, how's it going? I'm fine. You know, they... they're new, they're not family, and they're severely traumatized. So our idea was, for educational as well as practical purposes, is to create an all-male sanctuary so that there is this possibility of rekindling um, male-male relationships. And that, if you talk to anyone who's worked or anyone who's experienced trauma, making that psychosocial bond a relationship Um, is tremendously essential and and necessary for, you know, healing in that way.
1: Oh, yeah, I I saw a video a while back of two, um, they were siblings, and they'd been separated um, when their mother was shot, uh, and they were both sent to zoos. And 20 years later, they were reunited at a sanctuary, and they recognized each other, they, it was, it was, yeah. You sat there and you cried, um, because they're not just animals; they're sentient beings, they're, they spirits. And and um, to to put people through stuff like this, and, and then to put animals through this is just, it's horrendous. Yeah. So. So would you do um, would you do a sanctuary out where you're you're in? um... No, we we,
2: we're we're planning on uh, there is a sanctuary uh, with female elephants um, uh, in in Georgia, and that's where Mm -hmm. we sort of did this sort of search for that. I mean, there's a couple of factors: climate, um, land prices, and in terms of also uh, you know um, uh, wild you know what do you call it uh, natural disaster risk is minimum. So that's where we've really been focusing in that way um i mean again you know the it's a it's a difficult situation i mean you know when we're talking about i mean the biggest like i said the biggest lesson about the whole thing of trauma is don't cause it (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) yeah because to,
2: to, to to undo it which it can't be undone but to ameliorate it to make things better for that individual is very difficult um, and oh, yeah. picking up the pieces and for an elephant. I mean, it's huge. I mean, there's so elephants in captivity and other animals. Uh, elephants are so big, and then they have all these you know, horrible situations in zoos. I don't care what zoo it is. It's awful. Um, and I always tell people, when you look at an animal in a zoo or any kind of setting like that, and then you compare it to their quote-unquote scientifically documented natural environment to which they've evolved, the difference that you see is an estimate of the trauma and the stress that they have sustained and continue to sustain. So you have these very precarious um, health these individuals, and uh, it's a huge ethical responsibility. And, um, again, there's a lot, like you had asked earlier, you know, what do you do? Well You know, having a place that you can be yourself in, we all know that experience. We oh, all yeah. know what it feels like. At least have glimpses you know, that I feel like myself again. You know, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean being out in nature, wherever it is, like what that sense of I can be relaxed. You know, I, I, I start to feel healthy. You know, I start to feel normal, quote, unquote, right? That's really what it does for an elephant when you bring them into one of these beautiful places where they can actually be an elephant again, even though it's not the way that they have been or could have been. But they're able to be their self in a way that they've never been before. What is and, their lifespan? And that is really the, thats really uh, what we call in our, you know, what we write is dignity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's restoring a sense of dignity and respect to these individuals.
1: What 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 is an elephant's lifespan?
2: Uh, well, in the wild, um, you know, I guess. It's sort of, you know, I mean, these are all estimates that people have had that 60, 70, they can reach up to 70. In zoos, it's half wow. that in other situations. And the kind of physical deformities, the physical and psychological, when elephants go to sanctuary, it's a mess. I mean, you know, their feet are a mess. They have all sorts of, you know, internal problems uh, as well as psychological issues. And um, it's, it's extremely painful to do that. But like I said, is that you know every animal. I mean, like our rabbits and our tortoises, they all have those obstacles and those issues. It's quote unquote easier for us because they're smaller. Yeah. But the the challenges and the deprivation and the trauma and the, uh, is is comparable to any other animal, including elephants. And that's that's you know we we, we have to look at it and understand it. Like you mentioned, rattlesnakes. They have that same, same capacity as an elephant. And in my carnivore book, I actually um, uh, was talking and, and talk about rattlesnake, you know, sociality, you know, and considers them the same. Well, these people, you know, were researchers, um, but they left, they left academia because they felt it was so abusive and they loved snakes, and they did a lot of work on, on the sociality of rattlesnakes and their emotions and their feelings. And they just express things differently than we do. You know, they're, they're, they're built like a snake,
1: <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they have
2: snake stuff to do. Um, and they, they cuddle, you know, and they, they do different things, but they have a different culture. And those are the kinds of things that, like I said, why I feel that this work is so important to root and connect with uh, contemplative studies, spiritual studies, um, which um, most all, or I should say the majority, at least that I've encountered, um, are really rooting us into our essential nature, an essential nature I'll say with a capital N. And by those practices, those kinds of meditations, those kinds of um, ways of looking and being in the world really are foundational. And that's what we are doing in our courses is that we're really, in fact, we've kind of made a right-hand turn to really Diversify our um, education and outreach to provide people with opportunities to these kind of practices, which will um, increase their ability not only to have their own peace and dignity and health, but to bring that into the world for the animals and learn what it means. Like Charlie is an exemplar, what that means. I mean, Charlie would not like the word I use spiritual, and the reason why is because typically there's kind of what you know, um, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche used to say as a Buddhist teacher, spiritual bypass, you know, that, that it would be, oh, you know, the bears are so wonderful, but, but you know, it's another human projection. Who is that bear? And that yeah. bear is not just some symbol. That bear is a living being, and you are a living being. What is your relationship? But the fundamentals of Charlie's teaching and way of being in the world are very much reflective of what we see in uh, profound spiritual Traditions and contemplative studies.
1: Well, I mean, there there are even tribes where, where 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 when they are in an ecstatic state, they blend in with ravens and raptors, and um, that there is a a, a feeling of a merging of of energetics, mm-hmm. and spiritual nature. Yeah, I'm my you know my uh Wick is the metaphysical and the spiritual and mm-hmm. i mean you know i i am i am to the point where i'm horrified now at the thought of any kind of zoo and yet what do you do with all the animals that are there because they're also damaged now and you know and and given the opportunity to go free or stay in the in the zoo none of them would choose to stay in the zoo but most of them couldn't at this point in time survive within um their indigenous setting their their home well, that's why we have to
2: have not to use another
1: <laughs> tagline but
2: make all places sanctuary i mean we have to learn as humans um who are unfortunately in kind of a position now of privilege and power but to use that in service to bring dignity like our rabbits and our tortoises they really can't live on their own um but That's why we do what we do for the chickens and the turkeys who are genetically engineered to have horrible physiological issues. Uh Uh, And I think it's it's worthwhile. It's certainly something that's not sustainable. In other words, this kind of genetic engineering has to stop the same kind of specialized breeding of cats and dogs and you name it, cows and all that stuff, that exploitation, using animals for our own ends has to stop. But in the interim, I think that we're beholden on doing everything that we can individually and as a society to reinstate the dignity and the care for these individuals to live a life as fully. And that, to me, when you talk about the metaphysical, that is our salvation. That right there, our shift in consciousness, is the currency. I mean, shift in consciousness does not mean just that you think differently you know, when you're meditating or whatever, it means that shift in consciousness and putting that into action. That is the true currency.
1: Well, I certainly hope that everybody who's listening here, who even has a family pet that is sharing their home with them, um, will look at the, the animals they're sharing space with in, in a completely different way. It just, I just, I just noticed the time. We are just about out of time here. <laughs> um <laughs> well <laughs> That that went fast. <laughs> I I want to I want so thank you for your time and your energy, your commitment and and you know the gifts that you've shared with people and encourage people to check out talking with Bear's conversations with Charlie Russell and certainly going to your website um and and checking out all of the beautiful stuff you've got there, and, and hopefully, possibly um, sharing some finances because you do have a donation button. Um, the website's www.kerulos.org is the website. And um, pay attention. Take a look. Remember and, and understand that if an animal shares your home with you, they are, they are giving you a great gift and you're not doing them a favor by feeding them they're doing you a favor by not killing you i mean i have cats so yeah <laughs> my, my cats have opinions <laughs> but yes but definitely you know it it it's sort of like you know sharing your energy with another species is really it's important that you you do understand what that species is, and how they react, and why they react, and, and as best you can take care of them. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here tonight. You've been a true joy to talk to. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see if we can't get you back again, and see definitely, definitely keep me up on on Billy. Is there a is there a GoFundMe page or something for Billy? Um, we
2: have something I can send you that would uh, that we can uh, uh, share with you.
1: Okay, why don't you do that and I'll get it out there to everybody. So, other than that, I want to thank you um, and everybody. Thank you for being here. We greatly appreciate your um, being with us, and uh, hopefully you've learned something. Hopefully you'll check out the book and certainly the website. That said, thank you for being here, and I'll check. And with all of you next Monday night, good night now.